Splendid Table is brought to you by all the chickens at Locally Laid Egg Company. Producing high-quality, delicious eggs for over a decade, Locally Laid prioritizes good lives for their hens. Locally Laid Egg Company also partners with rural farmers to keep agriculture clucking along in Minnesota. Locally sourced, locally sold, that's Locally Laid. You can learn more about visiting the flock at the farm's Airbnb at LocallyLaid.com. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. Let me read you something really quick. People are always surprised that Black people reside in the hills of Appalachia. Those not surprised that we were there are surprised that we stayed. Those are the first lines of an absolutely gorgeous new book, a blend of memoir and cookbook by the wonderful writer Crystal Wilkinson, the recent Poet Laureate of Kentucky, who tells stories from five generations of her family in praise song for the kitchen ghosts. It's a book I had the honor of working on, and it's made me think not just of her family stories, but so much about who my kitchen ghosts are, the people and ancestors who come to you when you're cooking. I'm so excited to talk with Crystal later on in the show. But first, we're going to talk about the one ingredient that every cook, every kitchen ghost, in every place, in every era, will agree that you need every time you cook. Salt. Now look, straight up, whether your salt comes from a pristine coastal tide pool or a mountain in the Himalayas or out of a cardboard shaker that you lifted from a picnic table, you can make great food with it. But there is something special about traditional hand-harvested salts. Our dear friend, the New York Times cooking columnist Melissa Clark, reported on how these unique salts are produced in France, England, Oregon, and beyond. And being the great cook and cooking teacher that she is, she dug into the nitty-gritty of how to get the most out of these salts and when you can forget about them. She's dropped by the studio today to tell us all about that and to take some of your cooking questions. Hey, Melissa, it's great to see you. Hey, Francis, so great to be here. Uh, always a pleasure. And yeah, okay, I have to tell the people at home that, you know, we joked a little bit about this yesterday. Before the record, you did not get the New York Times to pay for you to go to France and England and Oregon to taste salt. <laughs> <laughs> You that would be to the be dream, there, wouldn't but it? You were doing your reporting. I happen to be there. Yep. You know, I mean, this is the thing. I go on vacation and I just can't stop working. I'm like, oh my god, I'm going to be in southern France with my family, but there is a place I can try salt right nearby, <laughs> and I'm going to take a day and do it. So you know, it's the thing. When you love what you do, it doesn't matter if you're on vacation, if you're home. You just want to, you know, just be explore and learn more. Yeah, I love that. You know, it's like that adage of like, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. Um, Absolutely. I think we both live that, right? Yeah, although I've also realized the flip side is true, which is if you love what you do, you never stop working. (laughs) There is that. I know. There is that. Yeah, my husband was like, wait, you're going to wake up at six in the morning and drive two hours to go to a salt marsh in the middle of... I'm like, yes, no, you don't understand. It's the coolest thing ever. (laughs) Okay, so but now you're in the salt marsh. And, I'm in the salt marsh. And you did go to these places. Again, you were in France you were um, where they harvest fleur de sel. And you were in yep. England where they make Malden salt, you know, very yep. famous, beloved salt. And in Oregon, um, where they do like an American version of these things. Yes, Oregon was Oregon was actually, um, the Times did send me to Oregon. I was um, doing other things while I was there. So it was a big work. That was, you know, strictly work. <laughs> right on, right on. So what did you see? Like, put us in those places with you. What is it? What is it like? What's the air smell like? What are you looking at? Well, the, I mean, the Camargue in southern France was absolutely exquisite. So you're in, um, you know, you're in the south. You have to go there really early in the morning because in July, which is when they harvest the salt, they need to harvest the salt for fleur de sel. What you're doing is you're waiting for the salt to naturally form on the top of these salt marshes. So you need the heat to evaporate the water so you have mm-hmm. a high concentration of salt and then you need the wind to help that so the oh, harvest takes place okay. of course during the hottest part of the year because that's how the salt that's when the salt is there so you have to do it really early in the morning and as you're driving up you're driving through this absolutely glorious medieval town um, called Egmort and the town has been there since Roman times because whoever controlled the salt 
controlled trade. That was a very wealthy part of France because mm. salt was essential for preserving. It was essential for all trade. And um, so you you're basically go you pass by this absolutely fantastic medieval castle and then you are let out into the salt marshes, which are pink. They are pink. All of the oh, water wow. is this rose color or the color of, you know, Himalayan salt is actually a similar color, but for a different reason. Uh, but it's this pink salt. And the reason that the salt is pink, the water is pink, is because of the algae. There's a high concentration of a pink algae, which turns the water this sunset color. And oh, so, cool. you know, the sky is this bright blue, the water is pink. And there are incredibly flamingos everywhere because flamingos eat the shrimp that eat the algae and that's what turns the flamingos pink. So it's wow. it's it's absolutely <laughs> stunning. You're in another world. And and by the way, anybody can go visit this area. You don't have to, you know. It's it's open to um to hikers to to walkers. So it's worth it if you ever happen to find yourself in southern France. I would say go see this incredible salt marsh. Oh, wear a hat. It's very hot. And so <laughs> I went there first thing in the morning and uh, during the harvest, and I went there to watch the harvest, and they let me harvest. They actually let me participate. So I put on my big boots, and I was with a couple of friends, and they handed me these shovels that they use to literally shovel the surface salt off of the water. It's really heavy. It's hard work. And you shovel them onto these canvas rafts. Mm -hmm. um, and then you're making these piles of pink salt that, that then they, you know, they use a winch to take it up, and, and they package it. They package it Pretty much, they just dry it out a little bit more, but it's completely unprocessed. This salt is pure, basically pure from these marshes straight mm. into the package. It's a really incredible product. Um, and uh, you, you really understand the work that goes into making Fleur de Sel. So the reason it's so expensive is because it's rare. Yeah, 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 sure, sure. But w what's really interesting, though, is that as I was talking to the Sauniers, which is the name of the the people who collect the salt, they were saying um, that although this has been done continuously since Roman times, this, this salt marsh has been harvested, there was a time during, you know, probably from like industrialization, like or 20th century industrialization from the 60s to the 90s, where no one wanted it. People hmm. wanted, you know, it was because it was expensive. It was hard to sure. harvest. And pe there wasn't a market for it. So they couldn't even give it away. They really like you really had to be in the note to know that this was there. People wanted this just processed industrial salt. So the as chefs discovered it, you know, it kind of get rediscovered yeah. and became popular. And um, as people like us wrote about it, then the market um, became reinvigorated and people were buying it again and there was more industry behind it. Yeah, it's interesting you said about 30 into the 90s because I remember, you know, reading about, oh, there's like different salts, you know, like probably 25 years ago, like I think it was in college, I remember like reading about uh, Fleur de Sel and, and how the, having, and at that point it became popular with chefs, as you said, and it was like having these different salts became a kind of status symbol for foodies or like in the knowledge mm -hmm chefs or whatever and and then it kind of normalized right like now now it's like oh caramel with big flaky salt on it like it's very it's delicious it's, you know but it's it's a little bit common and i think i personally have sort of forgotten how special these salts can be so now that you've seen it and obviously you've like really played with these salts remind us what's to love yeah, well, so, I mean, so, you know, that's, so that's fleur de sel, which is just one kind of specialty salt. There mm -hmm. are, there are hundreds of different kinds of salts. You know, what we sure. forget, because most of what we buy is industrialized salt, it's, it's pro highly processed. We forget that salt as um, a product of nature is each, it's, it has incredible terroir. I mean, it is of its place, right? So the, the salt, from the Camargue is pink because that is the color of the water. I also went to Malden salt, and Malden is a whole other process. It's a completely different way of making salt. They actually evaporate the water um, using in these tanks, and it, it, mm. it's a evaporated salt, um, and it crystallizes very differently. And it's a different crystal structure, a different flavor, a different color, completely different. But you can say that about every salt, every place where they produce salt. If in its natural state, it is completely different. It is a unique thing of a place. And that is what's so fascinating. You know, yeah. I mean, Himalayan salt, which you and I were talking about yesterday, is is mined salt. And that's taken from a cave. And that's very different as well. So if you really want to geek out and you try all these different salts and you eat them 
individually, like you just take a little bit, you know, maybe on something um, very bland, like, you know, a buttered cracker or just eat it out of your hand, Mm -hmm. you will absolutely taste the difference. Um, That difference does go away when you use it in cooking or when you use it as a finishing salt because, Mm, you know, what you're really tasting is you're just tasting the saltiness to to more or less degree. Some salts are saltier. Um, Maybe you're getting a little bit of the bitterness. But the thing about these finishing salts and these natural salts is that when you're getting the big chunky crystals or the big flakes, it's texture. And that is what is so prized. And that's the thing that I think we forget about as cooks is that when you're finishing a dish with a pinch of any of these salts, you are taking a dish from very good to extraordinary. And what I love about it being, you know, the kind of person who loves a hack and a shortcut (laughs) is that it doesn't take any work. It's like you have the salt, you buy the salt. Okay, maybe you spend $8 on a little container, but it lasts you for a year, like at least a year or two. And you you just sprinkle it on whatever you're cooking and all of a sudden, bam, it tastes better. And that is thrilling. And that is the thing. That is what I want to remind everybody about is that it's like, yes, you can take it to the nth degree and like think about the nuances between, you know, cell gris, Malden and fleur de sel. Or you can take any of those and you can sprinkle them on your tomato salad in the summer or your Mm -hmm. baked potato in the winter. And you can be like, oh, my God, this is so good. Why is this so good? Yeah. We'll be back with more with Melissa Clark, author of Dinner in One, and we'll take some of your cooking questions together. Then we'll talk with poet and cook Crystal Wilkinson, author of Praise Song for the Kitchen Ghosts. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. Our show is supported by Sitka Seafood Market. With Sitka Seafood Market, you can receive premium, sustainably harvested seafood from small boat fishermen and community processors shipped right to your door. Their wild-caught products are flash-frozen within hours of harvest, ensuring freshness and flavor. And Sitka Seafood offers flexible monthly or bi-monthly subscriptions, but you're never stuck with anything you don't want. They allow product swaps, special add-ons, easy pausing or cancellation, and they're backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Members can also access exclusive benefits, recipes, and cooking tips. Not ready to commit to a subscription? No problem. They have one-time boxes that showcase seasonal, festive, and popular varieties without commitment. Promoting the dietary guidelines supported by the American Heart Association, Sitka Seafood Market emphasizes seafood's heart-healthy benefits. They're rich in omega-3 fatty acids and lean proteins. Start your free online visit today at sitkaseafoodmarket.com and use promo code SPLENDID35. Listeners receive $35 off their first order of $100 or more, subscription, or one-time box. Offer cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. And that's Sitka, S-I-T-K-A, seafoodmarket.com, and promo code SPLENDID35. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is the show for curious cooks and eaters. We're talking about the pleasures of salt today, the single most important ingredient in your pantry with the beloved cookbook author and New York Times cooking columnist, Melissa Clark. Let's get back to it with her. You know, you've just talked about these really um, highly specialized salts, but I think when I'm talking to a lot of cooks, even just like the difference between table salt and kosher salt, and as we know when we're writing cookbooks or reading cookbooks, almost every cookbook calls for kosher salt, but then within kosher salt there are differences. So maybe let's run through a little bit and talk about how to use different salts for different purposes or how to decode the salt thing. Maybe let's yeah, start okay. with kosher salt because this is such yeah, a the thing kosher salt thing. Yeah, recipes. It yeah. is a thing. And you know what's interesting is it's really only in the last 10 years or 20, maybe 15 years that you see cookbooks calling for kosher salt as opposed to salt. If you look back at old cookbooks, mm-hmm. they just say salt. So this is kind of a new thing. So first thing, can I define kosher salt? Because I think there's some confusion about what kosher salt is. So kosher salt is not salt that has been blessed by a rabbi. It's not salt that is kosher. Salt is inherently, according to Jewish law, salt, which is a mineral, is kosher. So Like all salt is kosher. Yeah, all salt is kosher as long as it's pure salt. You need to know that it's pure. Sure, sure. So – some salt has been blessed by a rabbi for people who really want to make sure that this salt is 100% pure. It, but that's not why it's called kosher salt. Some kosher salt, it's called kosher salt because it is used for what they call koshering meat. So also Jewish dietary law, you and your cooking meat, you want to get all the blood out of the meat. This is important. So to do that, you put salt, 
on top of whatever freshly butchered meat, the salt needs to be very coarse because it's drawing out the blood, but you don't want too much of it to get absorbed by the meat or you're mm. gonna, the meat's going to be too salty. So kosher salt traditionally is just coarsely grained salt, whether it's been blessed by a rabbi or not. So, And that is, if it says kosher salt on the box, you're expecting a, a coarse salt. But then within that, how coarse? There's no, it doesn't matter. I mean, there's no um, mm-hmm. standard. Right. So every kind of kosher salt is its own kind of coarseness. And also every kind of kosher salt that can be made in any way. And there are a lot of different ways to make salt. Most kosher salts are industrial products, but there are different ways to get there. And so the two major brands on the market in the U.S. are Morton and Diamond Crystal. Mm -hmm. And chefs tend to use Diamond Crystal because it's the way that they were taught in cooking school. They're used to it. It's a lighter, finer crystal of salt. But in most supermarkets across the country, Morton is the one that you find, Morton kosher salt, which is what home cooks use. And there's a disconnect there because they're created differently. They have different levels of salinity and different weights. So Morton salt is these dense little cubes. So it's made under pressure. So imagine, you know, brine being pressurized. You are creating dense, thick crystals. That is what Morton salt is. And it's very heavy. So a teaspoon of that is going to weigh twice as much as diamond crystal. Now, diamond crystal is made in a completely different way. It's evaporated and salt flakes form on the surface of the water. It's actually made very similarly to the way Malden salt is made. You get these crystals on top of the water. Now, in Malden salt, that flake salt, those crystals, the idea is that they should be as big as possible and they should be preserved in that big size. Yeah, so they're crispy. For diamond, yeah. yeah, exactly. But diamond crystal takes those big flakes of salt and then crushes them up somewhat so they're smaller. But it's a similar kind of thing. And what you get is these flaky, very light crystals of salt. Yeah. And so, which is, I mean, it's a long way to explain why Morton salt is twice as heavy and twice as salty as diamond right. crystal. So if you don't say what kind of salt you're using in a recipe, you can make something undersalted or oversalted. And how is the poor person reading a recipe supposed to know what to do. And this is really frustrating to me because a lot of cookbooks and our recipes of the times too call for kosher salt, but they don't distinguish. So it actually Mm -hmm. has no meaning. One teaspoon of kosher salt, that that means two different things to two different people. Yeah. As a cookbook editor, this has become a little obsession slash pet peeve of mine where I ask all my authors, like, define which salt you're using. Another way to handle that is just have all salt be in weight. Except Americans don't like to weigh. We don't like to weigh things. We like yeah. to measure. We don't want to. But if you, I mean, it doesn't matter. It, all salt, if you weigh your salt, you get the same salinity. So that's all good. Like bread bakers always weigh their salt. Of mm-hmm. course they weigh their salt. And so it doesn't matter what kind of salt they use. Um, and then let's talk about table salt versus fine sea salt. Both of those are very finely ground salt. Um, both of them are industrial products. Mm-hmm. Fine sea salt is... Um, seawater. You could argue that actually all salt is sea salt. Table salt is also sea salt because although it's mined, the salt um, to make table salt. It came from the sea at one point. It came from the sea at one point, right. (laughs) So you could argue that some people do. Um, But the big difference really between sea salt and table salt is that sea salt, and you have to look for this, you have to make sure, but if generally sea salt does not have any additives, it's just sodium chloride. And generally, table salt does have some additives that are added to keep it free-flowing. You mm-hmm. know, the little it rains it pours. And that, that's to keep um, the salt from clumping. clumping. Okay. Exactly. So it'll have additives. Some have more additives. Some have less additives. So there's a uh, debate about if the additives are um, bad for you in some way. You know, um, there's a lot. If you want to go heavy into salt and you go online, you'll read a lot about the additives. But you just have to decide... Um, you know, what you're comfortable with. Table salt is the cheapest. It tends to have a slightly bitter flavor because of the additives. So if you're using a lot of it in pasta water, you maybe you'll taste it, maybe you won't. Depends on your sensitivity. Mm-hmm. But that's just something to keep in mind. Sea salt, a little more expensive, tends to be a little bit cleaner in flavor. Kosher salt also tends to be cleaner in flavor. Kosher salt is great. It's inexpensive. Um, but you just have to know how much you're using. Yeah, so. Yeah. Or just, you know, as we always say, like, taste. Salt to taste. Salt, Salt to, to taste. taste. It's just right. harder to do that. You know, the hard thing about that is for baking. Because for baking, you, you're not really tasting your batter, and you don't know what it's going to end up with yeah. at the end. Yeah. And baking recipes, I think, more and more are, are going to wait anyway. So that, that will help that. That will help that. Okay, Melissa. Well, I know salt. We could talk more about salt. We could talk about salt till 
you know, till the cows come home from their salt licks. <laughs> um, but we also have folks who really want to talk to you, folks on the line. Amazing. So let's start with Kevin. Hi, Melissa and Francis. Uh, hey, Kevin. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Washington, D.C. Oh, great. Um, How can we help so, you? Well, in an effort to eat less meat and more fiber this year, I'm trying to cook a pound of beans from dry each week. I'm hoping you can provide some suggestions for bean-centric main dishes, not sides, and ideally not soups either. I have a lot of those recipes, uh, especially dishes that might be a hit with our two-and-a-half-year-old. They mm. don't necessarily need to be vegetarian, and I do have an Instapot okay. and several of Melissa's cookbooks, if that's helpful. <laughs> Terrific. Um, well, first of all, you know, it's funny because a pound of beans goes fast. You know, it's not that much. I can just think of so many different ways to use it aside from soups. Uh, one of my favorites are bean patties. Bean patties are great because basically you you take your beans, you drain them, you mash them up, and you can put whatever you want in them. You want a little bit of egg and maybe a little flour, but you don't even need it really. Just a little egg for a binder mm. and um, then season it with I mean, you can go in so many different directions. Like, I love the idea of seasoning black beans with cilantro and jalapeno or maybe chipotle or white beans. You can season with um, Parmesan and a little tomato paste. Um, you can season pinto beans. Um, God, any which way. Maybe uh, I would, might go in a Middle Eastern direction with baharat. But whatever, you, you get a very highly flavored bean paste and a little bit of oil. So to make bean patties, the thing about it is they really want to stick to your pan. Either use a nonstick pan or make sure you get your pan super hot before you add your oil. Then you add your oil. Get that hot before you add your bean patties. And that is going to help get it crispy. And kids love that because they're crispy on the outside. They're soft. They're fully flavored. And then you can do a little yogurt dipping sauce. Mm. Or honestly, for your kids, like ketchup, frankly. I mean, if, if, you, if you have a ketchup-loving kid, there's nothing like bean patty and a ketchup. It's a really delicious thing with sort of hamburger vibes. Um, another thing is um, think of like a pot pie. So you've got beans on the bottom and cornbread on top. It's like – I think they hmm. – Like a shepherd's like pie a, kind of thing? Or? Yeah. I mean I think it's it's like an American tamale. It's not a tamale sure. tamale. <laughs> but it's like – I think they might even call it tamale pie. I think that might be the, the American term for this. So okay, it's like yeah, a, yeah, yeah. So you've got your beans on the bottom, almost like a chili-flavored bean – you know, with cumin and lots of garlic and onions, and then a cornbread mixture on top, and you bake it in the oven. It is so good. Kids love it. Grown-ups love it. In fact, I might even make that tonight. Oh, yeah. Great. And Kevin, thank you so much for the call. Thank you for the time. Thanks, Kevin. All right, let's go to Patricia in New Mexico. Hi, Francis. Hi, Patricia. Hi, Melissa. Nice to meet you both. I wanted to let Melissa know that I, um, I love... Going through her book, Dinner in an Instant. Fantastic. Yeah, I was brand new to pressure cooking, so I was grateful to learn about how to do some recipes. But since then, you know, I run into a lot of recipes that I think, wow, I bet this could really benefit from pressure cooking. It could make it quicker. Yeah. And I'd love to be able to get more intuitive, you know, cooking with the pressure cooker from just traditional recipes. Or should I just scrap the whole thing and just go with the? No, no, no. I think that's a great that's a great goal, and that's I mean the thing about it is once you start to understand what really is, I mean there's some things that I think are just better in the instant pot. It's funny because yeah, oh my god, braised meat. Aside from I mean beans are good either way. Beans are much faster. Get back to beans here. Beans are much faster in the instant pot. And you do have to make sure not to overcook them because it's actually easy to overcook beans in the Instant Pot. But if you're just careful with the timing, they're so great. But braised meat is better. And I can tell you this because I've always, since I got my Instant Pot, I've been cooking, I've been doing all my braises, all my stews, because the pressurized um, environment just really effectively breaks down all of, you know, the for for stews and braises, you know, you have meat cuts that are kind of chewy and you want to break down all of the collagen and break down the protein so they're tender. And you can do that certainly in a pot on the stove or you can do that in your oven, in a Dutch oven. But you know how you always risk drying it out? Like unless for a braise, yeah. especially if you're using just a little bit of liquid, traditionally a braise is only half liquid and then you have some of the meat protruding on top and you have to turn it. Otherwise, that top mm-hmm. of that meat is going to dry out and you don't have mm-hmm. that. 
with an instant pot, it just it eliminates that entirely. But let's talk about basic general rules. Like, so you have a recipe and you're thinking, I want to make this in the instant pot. I want it to be faster. What you want to look for is recipes that want to be in a moist environment. The instant pot is never going to give you crispy, caramelized, or brown. It's only going to give mm. you soft, soupy, and just, you know, steamed or supple or custardy. So anything you think you go on a roast, you have to just do it traditionally because it's not going to taste as good in the Instant Pot. Um, I know there are people who do a whole chicken in the Instant Pot, but I am not one of them unless it's a chicken <laughs> stew where it's like meant to, you know, be soft. So any stew, any braise, any soup, absolutely any soup, any bean recipe can be done in the Instant Pot. And the only thing you need to think about is liquid level. That is the only thing you need to adjust. Everything else, you brown it just like the regular recipe says, or not, depending on your recipe. But because you're not getting evaporation, you need to use less liquid in the Instant Pot. Mm. Otherwise, you're not going to get you're not going to get the, the richness of flavor, right? So just right. Um, so the rule with the Instant Pot is you need about a cup or a cup and a half of liquid so that the bottom, you know, so you don't get the burn signal. So start there and then at the end, and if you're making a soup, you can add more. But I would say for a soup recipe, cut the liquid by maybe two cups, two or three cups. Um, mm. And for a braised recipe, you want to cut it all the way down. Like you just want to use a cup and a half or so of liquid. And because you're not getting any evaporation. So you're going to end up with the same amount of liquid mm -hmm. that you started with. Um, if you have an ingredient like beans or pasta that's going to absorb the liquid, you have to think about that too. Oh, okay. So you have to add a little bit more. But in general, so just like for broad strokes, your, your soup, your stew, or whatever your moist cooking thing is, cut the liquid to some degree. And then you find a similar recipe, you know, the same cut of meat or the same type of bean or vegetable, um, which is pretty easy to find online. Use that for the timing. And then when you take off the top, now this is where you have to be a cook. So Patricia, you're like standing in front of your pot, taste, taste, taste. And if it tastes like it needs evaporating, that's when you just click on the saute setting with a cover off. That's going to do the evaporation for you. You don't even have to take it out of the pot. So if it tastes like a little bit bland and you think, oh, this needs richness, you want to simmer it down. Or if you open it up and you think, okay, yeah. this is too intense, then you just add a little more liquid, a little more water, a little more stock. So it's like you do have to, you know, use your intuition as a cook to adjust it. But I think, you know, if you do it once or twice, you're going to get the hang of it. And just again, think recipes like cuts of meat, beans, really big root vegetables, things that want a moist environment are going to be perfect. And you can do them in half the time. Terrific. Okay. All right. Well, thanks, thanks for the for call, calling. Patricia. You're welcome. It was a pleasure right. meeting you both. Yeah, same. And thank you, Melissa. It was great to talk with you today. Thanks so much for coming by. Oh, my gosh, Francis. Thank you so much. I, I know I could talk forever about salt, beans, instant pots, you know, yeah. cooking. <laughs> it's so fun to talk to you. Just scratching the surface. All right. I'll talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Bye. Melissa Clark is a food reporter and cooking columnist for the New York Times and is the author of, get this, 45 cookbooks. Her latest is called Dinner in One. And for a taste of her style, check out her recipe for roasted cauliflower and potatoes with harissa, yogurt, and toasted almonds at SplendidTable.org. Crystal Wilkinson is a magnificent writer, a novelist and poet. She's won the NAACP Image Award, the O. Henry Prize, and was Kentucky's Poet Laureate. So to be honest, I was not exactly expecting a cookbook proposal from her to drop in my email one day. But what she wanted to write was not any old cookbook. So the story behind it is that one day, her great-great-great-great-grandmother to her in a dream. Crystal had found a record of her, the first black enslaved woman of her line to be brought to Appalachia, and they talked in her dream. She kept researching her other ancestors, talked to her family, and remembered her own mother and grandmother who raised her and who passed away. And one day, as Crystal was cooking in her kitchen, which she loves to do, she looked down at her arms and realized that she saw her grandmother's arms as she stirred in her mixing bowl. And so she started to write this book, Praise Song for the Kitchen Ghosts. 
It's beautiful and lyrical and delicious. It's 40 recipes to go with a blend of memoir, history, and imagination, singing the praises of five generations of her family, the ghosts of the ancestors who come to her when she gets ready to bake a skillet of cornbread. It's a truly wonderful read. And Crystal, I am so happy to see you. Oh, it's good to be here with you. You know, the other thing I'm happy about is I am so happy to see how much people are loving this book. You know, the whole time we were working on it, I was reading it to myself. And I just kept saying, like, I can't wait for people to see this. And now it's out in the world. So what are the kitchen ghosts saying to you right now? Hmm. Um, I promise I wasn't going to start crying right away with that question. <laughs> um, I, I hope they're saying, especially my grandmother and, and even Aggie, I hope they're saying that they're proud. Mm. That's what I hope they're saying. Yeah. Well, in fact, I know. In fact, I know. I know they're proud. Mm. So for folks who have not read this book five times plus, like me, who are the kitchen ghosts? And how did you start to write about them? The kitchen ghosts are my maternal ancestors uh, going all the way back as far as I could, beginning with Aggie, um, who was listed as Aggie of color on a court document that I found. Mm. Um, and so she was born in 1795. At least that's what it says that she was. Uh, that's what my research says that she was born in 1795 in Virginia and likely brought over as an enslaved child to Kentucky, right when Kentucky was being formed. And the way that I began to write about her is that I, I had an assignment um, to write these really short, brief uh, flash essays um, about women in my family. And mm. so I decided, oh, this will be great. Maybe I'll do a lyric essay and string them together. I was going to just write these little brief pieces. Of course, I knew everything about my grandmother, and I thought I would just go back as far as I could. There's an ancestor in our family um, who's actually featured on the cover of the book, um, Patsy Rife. And mm -hmm. Patsy Rife is famous, at least in my little town. <laughs> she's famous because <laughs> uh, she's the only black woman who was a business owner. There's a ridge there named after her. And in all the history books, it always said that she was the daughter of a white businessman and an enslaved woman. Mm. And then when I found her, I was suddenly obsessed with her. With Patsy. Um, with, with Patsy, but with Patsy's mother. When I found Patsy, mm -hmm. I was, was a, sort of obsessed with her too, uh, and what she was able to do um, as a black woman during her time. But when I found out that her mother's name was Aggie, and I followed that lineage and found out who the white businessman was, just sort of the way, you know, as an educated woman, as a writer, as a black woman in America, of course I know what the legacy of slavery is in these in this country. But to see it up close uh, and to have it connected with my own name and my own lineage was just mind-blowing to me. Mm -hmm. Just It just blew the top off of my head, and I just could not let go. So, of course, I couldn't write those other essays. I just kept, um, I was almost in a, in, a, in a state, like I was rocking and walking the beach and talking and trying to figure out um, about her. And I went to sleep with her one night with her on my mind. And I woke up and Aggie said to me, I hear my mother calling, but not in your language. Hmm. And as a writer, I was thinking, oh, my gosh, um, you know, it, it felt real. It felt I was crying. I immediately jumped up out of my bed and, and walked along the beach um, thinking about it. And I, and I thought, well, you know, as a writer, I'm thinking, OK, this is fiction. You know, she's not really speaking to me. This is fiction. Mm -hmm. And um, by the time I had taken that walk, I realized that I'd had um, an experience of some kind and that I needed to explore it further. We'll be back with more with Crystal Wilkinson in a moment. 
so stick around. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. Our show is supported by Sitka Seafood Market. With Sitka Seafood Market, you can receive premium, sustainably harvested seafood from small boat fishermen and community processors shipped right to your door. Their wild-caught products are flash-frozen within hours of harvest, ensuring freshness and flavor. And Sitka Seafood offers flexible monthly or bi-monthly subscriptions, but you're never stuck with anything you don't want. They allow product swaps, special add-ons, easy pausing or cancellation, and they're backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Members can also access exclusive benefits, recipes, and cooking tips. Not ready to commit to a subscription? No problem. They have one-time boxes that showcase seasonal, festive, and popular varieties without commitment. Promoting the dietary guidelines supported by the American Heart Association, Sitka Seafood Market emphasizes seafood's heart-healthy benefits. They're rich in omega-3 fatty acids and lean proteins. Start your free online visit today at sitkaseafoodmarket.com and use promo code SPLENDID35. Listeners receive $35 off their first order of $100 or more, subscription, or one-time box. Offer cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. And that's Sitka, S-I-T-K-A, seafoodmarket.com and promo code SPLENDID35. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is the show for curious cooks and eaters. We're talking to award-winning poet and novelist Crystal Wilkinson about her new cookbook, Praise Song for the Kitchen Ghosts. Let's get back to her. It's funny because, like, you know, we, we talk about these these ancestors of yours as, as the kitchen ghosts, and so far we've not spoken to the kitchen. She came to you in, in sort of different moments, different places. But you say you feel these ancestors deeply, almost like palpably when you're cooking, and that's why they became your kitchen ghosts. Tell, tell oh, us yes. how you came to that realization, I guess, or, or when you started to feel their presence in your life. Yeah, I mean, I think it started with the death of my grandmother and trying to uh, be a woman worth her salt in the kitchen, right? Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. I grew up at her skirt tail, learning all these things, and then uh, when my grandmother died, of course, we were in a place of, of such a tough place of grief, uh, but the first holiday that rolled around, we were like, oh, my gosh, you know, what happens now? Mm. So me and my cousins and my aunts and uncles, we sort of decided to stay in our little pods in our in our houses. And so I came into this kitchen right where I am now. And I I said, um, how am I going to do this by myself? Um, and. I, you know, I was speaking to her. I was like, okay, granny, can I, can I do this? You taught me, can I do this? And I remembered that I had her dress in the closet and I went back to the back of the house, got her dress, brought it in, hung it up on, on the door Hmm. of the kitchen, uh, the kitchen, the back kitchen door as I was cooking. And, uh, oh, what an experience it was. Like suddenly she was there and, and what's, What's wonderful about this is I don't think that I could have written about it if it didn't feel so unique and so personal. And what's mm. wonderful on the other side is that how many people can relate to that moment or a moment like that uh, about the people who come to them when they're in the kitchen. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, you you were talking, we were talking the other day about how, you know, as you've been talking to people who have read the book or, you know, doing giving interviews like this. Folks have come to you where you've heard people talk about their kitchen ghosts, sort of inspired by the stories that you write about. What are some of those that you heard that you that you that have, have struck you? Uh, one that struck me is that um, there's a woman that I know who's from Jamaica and um, she's a friend and um, she grew up in a little we we call her. Her place is not Indian Creek like mine, but hers was gra- called Gravel Hill. And mm-hmm. we, we always make this this joke about like we're she says, I'm Appalachian, too. I grew up in Jamaica, <laughs> but I'm Appalachian, too. And we talk about what that means. But she was telling me about her uh, great grandmother who she used to go to every day after school. And she says that now uh, even when she makes sorrel. And she she goes and gets the mm, I don't the, know the how drink, she like finds the hibiscus them. drink yeah yeah the hibiscus drink I don't know how she finds those ingredients here in Kentucky but she finds the pimento leaves and as soon as they hit the dried pimento leaves hit the hit the water and she smells 
that smell of hibiscus. And then she adds the cloves that it's as if her grandmother walked up behind her. Mm. And she has other ingredients that she talked about that bring that rose water, uh, which was never used in my house, but rose water was one another thing that she thought was that brings her ancestors back to her rose water and nutmeg. Um, and um, had the privilege uh, with her over the holidays, we exchanged, I gave her Kentucky jam cake, which also has, you know, cinnamon and uh, nutmeg and, and uh, cloves in it. And she gave me the sorrel. So it felt like we were doing a, a kitchen ghost exchange uh, <laughs> with that. So, so that's one of the, the most memorable, memorable stories. But some of the others, like um, there was a woman who is, is a vegetarian uh, and her grandmother's from uh, Southern Kentucky and uh, very meat-based meals. But she says that still when she's at the stove, she can almost feel the muscle memory of her grandmother kicking in and, you know, She'll sometimes put her put her hand on her hip and look out the window or wash dishes, and she very much feels her grandmother's presence. Mm. And it's not just women who have who have kitchen ghosts. Um, there was a, a, a man who um, was talking about his mother, like a recipe for a soup being the very last thing that she wrote oh. before she'd passed. Um, so there's just all kind. there's just been a flood of, of kitchen ghost stories from all over the world. Um, and so I was wondering, what about you? Do you, who are your kitchen ghosts and what, what, what's a meal that, (laughs) that triggers you? That's a great question. You know, as I was reading this book and obviously you, you, you write about these kitchen ghosts in your life that go five generations back and you have stories of, you know, amazing to to know that you can find the histories and and um, and, and some of the histories are sort of imagined. Some of the dialogue is imagined, obviously, as you, as you've written them. But I think about how to have that you have connection to not just your family and your past, but to your land, mm-hmm. right? Because it's five generations who have lived in this same land, so like they saw what you see. And uh, if I think of myself, I don't have that you know, being the child of immigrants, like I'm the first generation of my family who grew up here, right? So Mm -hmm. I don't have this long connection to the land that I call home. Um, And in terms of the family, like my parents didn't really cook when I was growing up. You know, they were working all the time. So, you know, TV dinners and it was, we had, we had, um, my, my grandmother would live with us on occasion. So sometimes she would cook. And, and I do remember, and my grandmother, my mother's mother, was a very good cook, uh, but she was also a really nasty person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she's passed now, um, but particularly when I was growing up, uh, you know, we were afraid of her, so we didn't have wow. that. We didn't have that kind of relationship where I would go up and be like, "Granny, teach me this." It was like I was scared of her. <laughs> so, uh, so I never learned from her, and. It's funny when you when you ask me this question because I wish I did. I mean, literally, I wish I did because I would love to make the food that she can make because it's delicious and I don't know how to make mm-hmm. that food. So that, that shows me a disconnect that I have from my culture too, right? Like I don't know how to cook Chinese food as well as I know how to cook pasta, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, something I think about with her, like one 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 dish I remember her making that we always loved as a family, she would make for parties. Was a was a was a a coffee jello, like a, a jello cake, coffee oh, flavored wow. with bananas in it. It sounds a little strange, and it's not certainly traditionally Chinese, but it's a maybe it was a Hong Kong thing, or maybe she learned it in a magazine. I have no idea, but I remember she, that was one of the things she would make for parties. And somehow, um, sometime in my 20s or 30s, you know, decades after I'd last tasted it. I asked my mom how to make it. My mom was like, I have no idea. <laughs> so I, 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 I set about trying to um, make it. And I eventually came upon, a, you know, sort of came to a recipe. I kind of like fiddled with this, fiddled with that. And it tasted pretty close. 
Oh, wow. And it was sort of funny because even though my relationship with her was very difficult and, and, and not close, um, I did have a feeling of sort of warmth and nostalgia when I was able to taste that thing. Um, so that was interesting. Oh, wow. Hmm. That is, that's uh, very interesting. I, I, I talked to someone else the other day who has really enjoyed the book, but had a similar, um, grew up in the South and with all of these wonderful Southern foods around them. But their mother was an academic and felt like that, you know, the kitchen was a, a place of, um, not a good place for women. So I think that mm-hmm. she sort of taught her not to be uh, in the kitchen, not mm-hmm. to be underfoot. But yet, um, this person makes some of the best cakes uh, that I've ever <laughs> tasted. And um, I think sometimes things are, you know, not to be too foo-foo or whatever, but I, I think sometimes things are in the blood like things are in the blood. There's a blood memory that brings you back mm. to certain foods, to certain food ways. Uh, and then suddenly there you are, you know, making making a coffee jello that that brings back some nostalgia, even though you didn't grow up learning how to do that. Yeah. I think that's the magic of food, right? It travels, travels yeah. with you through time. And it changes and sometimes it can change you too. Crystal, mm-hmm. I want to ask you something. Um, yeah. You know, obviously we, <laughs> you know the book better than I do, but I know it pretty well. And there are so many passages in the book that I, I wish I've had a chance to hear you read. Because I can hear your voice in my head when I was reading it, but I've never heard it with my ears. I was wondering if you would read a piece of this for us. Oh, sure. And I was thinking yeah. if you wouldn't mind reading maybe from the early part of the the chapter, What These Women Know About Bread. Okay. There is cornbread in my blood. I can make it in my sleep, but it's hard to give someone else instructions unless they are standing right beside me in the kitchen. Ron, my husband, called me recently while I was away for a writing conference and asked me for my cornbread recipe. I hesitated, got a little angry that someone who has actually cohabitated with me for almost 15 years, wouldn't know how to make cornbread. But then I remembered he's from Louisville, a city boy. Didn't your mama make cornbread, I asked him. He named two box cornbread mixes that taste like cake, though I'm sure Miss Helen made a fine skillet of cornbread in her day. She's in her 90s now and no longer cooks, but she is a country woman too, born and raised on the Tennessee border down in Franklin, Kentucky. Never mind, I told him. Just use the directions on the cornmeal sack. Come to my kitchen and we'll make cornbread all day. But every time someone asks me for the recipe, I flounder. I have to think about it. I want to say, just let me make it for you. But I was too far away to make cornbread for him. In the end, he decided to remain without cornbread until I got back home. The last time one of my daughters asked me how to make cornbread, I made her get on a video call so I could see what we were working with. What are you fixing it with, I asked. She didn't think it mattered. She grew silent. I could tell she was a little perturbed with me. She thought I was clutching some ancient family recipe and not wanting to give it to her. But the truth was I needed to see her, to see her ingredients in order to tell her what she'd need. Cornbread with a tablespoon of sugar added goes better with soup beans. You need a more dense cornbread for dressing. Hot water cornbread is the better companion for cabbage. I wanted us to be shoulder to shoulder with our aprons on so I could show her like Granny showed me. She needed to hear my voice and I needed my eye on her so she could get it right. I told her, She needed self-rising cornmeal, milk, eggs, and oil for the skillet. She seemed surprised at that short list. Are you sure, she said. I assured her that that was all she needed. She shrugged her shoulders like, here goes nothing. (laughs) 
So what did she do? How'd she do? And what were you feeling um, watching her? It was really um, strange. I felt guilty as a mama. I was like, oh my gosh, mm. my daughter can't make uh, cornbread because she cooks all the time, but she looked very uncomfortable and very uneasy as she was measuring and pouring and stirring. Um, but the good news is that it came out uh, well. She she kind of eased it up to the camera so that I could see once it was done. And it was beautiful. It was a beautiful skillet of, of hmm. cornbread. So she and she's been making cornbread ever since. So she did a good job <laughs> in her blood. Cornbread's in her blood, too. It's in her blood. It's in her blood. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because you, you you I mean, you just said something that that to me strikes me as being really powerful thinking about you know, my own daughter and what I'll leave her. You know, you said you, you, you kind of doubted yourself as a mother. Um, at least for a moment, um, you know, as I as I think of this book, and this book is about five generations of your ancestors, and and how their stories and their food traveled down and came to you. I hope you'll pardon me if I say this, if it sounds the wrong way, but it sounds in that moment that you were also setting yourself up to be someone's kitchen ghost in the future. Yeah, I thought about that a lot while I was um, writing the book. And I, and I guess I've thought about it before um, and sort of had to reconcile, you know, is this as important to to the next generation as it is to me? And is it okay with me if it's not? Mm. Um, and I came up on that, of course, it's okay. You know, I as a feminist woman, as an educator, I... Uh, like, you know, that other woman I was telling you about earlier, I don't want my children to feel like they have to be in the kitchen and um, produce all of this food. But, um, you know, I am happy that they have taken certain recipes. And I do think that that it'll be passed on. I was so, my granddaughter is 20, 21. Hmm. And she called recently wanting the, the um, she loves corn pudding. And so she called and she said, Granny, can I have the corn pudding recipe? <laughs> and then, of course, she was making fun of me because I was like, oh, my God, I'm crying. And she's like, why are you crying about the corn pudding recipe? <laughs> well, honey, you got to read Grandma's book. Yeah. <laughs> well, Crystal, it is always such a pleasure, but especially right now as we can celebrate this wonderful, wonderful publication and achievement. Thank you so much for coming by. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Crystal Wilkinson is the author of Praise Song for the Kitchen Ghosts, a professor at the University of Kentucky and former poet laureate of Kentucky. And for her recipe for her Indian Creek skillet cornbread, head to SplendidTable.org. Well, that is our show for the week. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week. APM Studios are run by Tandra Kavadi, Alex Shafford, and Joanne Griffith. Beth Perlman's our executive producer, and The Splendid Table was created by Sally Swift and Lynn Rosetto Casper. It's made each week by technical producer Jennifer Lupke, producer Erica Romero, digital producer James Napoli, and managing producer Sally Swift. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is APM Studios. 